You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. By the way, do you have someone in your life who's willing to give you a rebuke? Who's willing to come to you tenderly, humbly, prayerfully and say to you, you know, I appreciate this about you. I notice this wonderful thing about you that is able to understand you and knows what's good in your life, but also says, I see this in your life. This is dangerous. This is not good for you. This is an attitude you'd have over and over and you're not getting rid of it. And you need to change. When someone in church or someone in your family does that for you, thank them. They're helping you. Don't fight them. A rebuke is a wonderful thing. You should appreciate it when someone does that for you. Do you have someone in your life who will tell you the truth, even if it's hard to hear? Pastor Tom will encourage you to find someone like that today, if you haven't already. It's so important to have godly counsel in your faith journey. There's always something to improve on as you continue to grow in your walk with Christ, but sometimes you can become blind to some struggles. If you allow someone to tell you the hard truths, you have the opportunity to change and grow. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he continues his message, Duplicitous Praise. We have to be against murder because murder is the killing of someone made in the image of God. By the way, abortion is murder. We have to protect innocent life. When we're against murder, we're for the protection of innocent life, lives that have been made in the image of God. Because of the image of God, we have to be for the death penalty because the person who murders deserves to die because he killed one made in the image of God who was innocent. This is a foundation for Christian ethics. The image of God is intrinsic to every human being, and it's universal in every human being, men and women. Men are not more made in the image of God than women or vice versa. Even after the fall and the sin and things got violent and ugly and sinful and immoral, we're still reading here in James 3, and James knows about sin. He's listing a lot of the sins here. We read that we are made in the image of God, the likeness of God. Further proof is in Genesis 5.3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image. Well, what was Adam made in? Adam was made in the likeness and the image of God. So if his son is in the likeness and image of Adam, that means that likeness and image transfers even after the fall down to the next generations, you see. Many generations later, after the flood in the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That's the endorsement for the capital penalty, the penalty of death for those that have murdered. For in the image of God, he made him. That person murdered was innocent. You must take the life as government of the person that did that because if you don't, you don't honor the life of the person that was killed. By letting the murderer live, you have dishonored the image of God. That's why it must be shed. God's person must not be cursed. And when the image of God is murdered, that person is not allowed to live. Unfortunately, our society kills the innocent and allows defends the rights of those that are guilty. We got it exactly backwards. Listen, the image remains even in gross, sinful men. The image of God was not lost in the fall. Unbelievers and idol worshipers are also made in the image of God. Homosexuals, though we hate their practice, are made in the image of God. It's one of the reasons why what they do so dishonors God. 
They're supposed to reflect that image more, you see. And same with all of us. Post-fall, the image became marred but never removed. It became defaced but not erased. It had been distorted but never demolished. In some people, this image is so frightfully deformed, we might say it's not there, but traces of it always remain. Men may look and act like beasts at times, but they never shed being made in the image of God. The image of God is not dependent on any activity or relationship that man has. Man does not lose the image if he chooses not to exercise dominion over the planet. If he chooses to act ungodly, he does not lose the image. Nor does man lose the image if he disassociates himself with all other human beings, goes somewhere off in northern Alaska and decides to have a relationship with nobody. He's still made in the image of God. The image is not something that man possesses. The image is not something man does. The image is something man is. Man is the image of God. The New Dictionary Theology goes on. Recent ancient Near Eastern studies help to throw light on the original significance of the biblical phrase. An image might be either a statue representing the one imaged or perhaps the king adopted as the son of a god. The image expressed the presence of an absent Lord in the sphere of his own dominion. In that context, the image was, to this context, what the God was to the entire sphere of his lordship. This suggests that if it is man as man, not some element in his constitution, which constitutes the divine image, man in his entirety is the viceroy of the earth. He is to be to the earth what Yahweh, that is God, is to the entire universe. His life is to be a microcosm of the macrocosm of divine life, end quote. Anthony Hokema, in his book on anthropology, quotes Herman Bavnik, and he writes this, Man does not simply bear or have the image of God. He is the image of God. From the doctrine that man has been created in the image of God flows the clear implication that that image extends to man in his entirety. Nothing in man is excluded from the image of God. All creatures reveal traces of God, he writes, but only man is the image of God. And he is the image totally in soul and body, in all faculties and powers, in all conditions and relationships, end quote. Please remember this, however. The image of God is still an image, not the real thing. Some people distort this into, we are God. No, we're not God, we're the image of God. And there is a wide gulf of difference between that. Man's nature is linked with God's, but never is divine. Man is made. God is not made. And man is not divine. Man is not to be worshipped. Man is to be respected for the sake of the one who is worshipped. If you had a photograph of your wife, gentlemen, and you really loved it, you showed it to someone, they said, let me see that, and they took it and ripped it up in front of you, wouldn't you take offense? you take offense because the picture is an image of the one that you love very much, right? However, the picture, no matter how much you take offense, is not worth anywhere near as much as your beloved wife, amen? amen. That's how it is. We are the image. We're the photograph. We're the statue, so to say, of God. We are to speak of God's image with respect, not curse it. That's who men are. But notice verse 10. From the mouth come both blessing and cursing. This is the problem. This is the dichotomy. We bless God and turn right around and curse the same person. 
We're cursing God when we curse men. You see, your reverence and love for God has to be transferable to the one that God made in his own image and said, respect them. In 1 John 4, verse 20, it kind of brings out this inconsistency also. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Unfortunately, though, our tongues are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Remember that? One moment good, next moment a monstrosity. This is the incongruence. This is the inconsistency. This is the problem. And notice next, as a tactic, James second rebukes our inconsistency there in the latter part of verse 10. Look at it. He just simply says this. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So clear. He uses a unique expression there. Ought not to be this way. That's a rebuke. That's a correction. It is this way. Unfortunately, it ought not to be that way. That's a rebuke. It's a tender rebuke. He's being pastoral here. He talks about them as the brethren. He loves them as brethren. He's rebuking them not so he can put himself above everyone else. He's rebuking them for their sake. This is not really the way to live, you see. It's hard enough, by the way, receiving a correction, but if someone's not not kind in the way they give that correction, that's even harder. I'm so grateful that James keeps writing in here, my brethren, my brethren, my brethren, I love you, don't be this way. By the way, those of you who feel you need to pass on a correction or rebuke to someone, you need very humbly to check your own heart. We all need to do that as leaders and make sure it doesn't sound like something like, I'm so disgusted with you. Oh my goodness, how bad you behave. By the way, that's how we talk sometimes to our children. I'm so much better than you, I would never be bad the way you are bad. Now, listen to my rebuke. You want to know why they don't work? There it is. You foolish person, I'm not like you at all. I live so obediently, I'm so consistent. We don't say it quite that way, but that's how we sound. Never give a rebuke like that. James didn't. Be patient. Don't be angry. Nevertheless, the ought not part is quite strong, and it's needed. We have gross inconsistency. James is like putting up a roadblock. It's like he's standing there as a roadblock. You're driving your car down. Stop. No, don't go through here. Down this road, it's all broken, and you're gonna, your car's going to fall off in a ditch. Don't go this way. That's the kind of help. That's what a rebuke is all about. By the way, do you have someone in your life who's willing to give you a rebuke, who's willing to come to you tenderly, humbly, prayerfully, and say to you, you know, I appreciate this about you. I notice this wonderful thing about you that is able to understand you and knows what's good in your life, but also says, I see this in your life. And this is dangerous. This is not good for you. This is an attitude you'd have over and over, and you're not getting rid of it. And you need to change. When someone in church or someone in your family does that for you, thank them. They're helping you. Don't fight them. A rebuke is a wonderful thing. You should appreciate it when someone does that for you, if you've done wrong indeed. A good rebuke comes with love, and it comes with a little bit of sacrifice. It's hard to give a rebuke. Let them correct you, though. You know, if you have a tongue, then you bless God on Sundays, and on the ride home from Sundays, you curse men. Can't stand that person. You know, I wish they weren't in our church. You get hot and angry at work. These fools, what are they doing? They're ruining my life. I got to come in here every day. And you just finished your quiet time. You know, you're singing that great tune to the Lord. Husbands to your wives. Wives to your husbands. How disrespectfully some wives speak to their husbands. You know, your neighbor breaks your fence and you swear down holy fire on his head. 
Cursing men is not for saints. Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 1 Corinthians 4, 12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And so, receive the rebukes and do not revile in return. The third tactic from James here is to point out the folly of our inconsistency, and that's in 11 and 12. Would you look back there and look at it again? Let's read that little section there because... I haven't looked at that in a while. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? So he's asking here three rhetorical questions. They all expect a negative answer. And I think it's kind of neat that James, just like his half-brother Jesus, remember that, he's Jesus' half-brother, son of Joseph and Mary, Loves to talk about nature, loves to illustrate from nature. So did Jude, by the way, the other half-brother in his little letter. You'll find nature all over there. And this sounds so much like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was teaching. He was always using uh, uh, illustrations from nature. In Matthew 7, verses 15 and following, it says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So, he, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Same kind of similar, you know, teaching here. Verse 11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. And the ancients knew that. They understood this analogy very well. The fountain from a spring was a very common thing and a very blessed thing for them there. They needed it for life. They needed water for survival. Cities in ancient days were always built around a water source, and often that water source was a fountain, was a spring. They depended on it. There'd be no life without the water. Sometimes wells were dug, but sometimes you couldn't do that. So the source of drinking water for the whole city and all of life came from that blessed spring. You might think of a spring. You might think, think of taking a trip, you know, out to Shenandoah Mountains, Blue Ridge or something, and you see a little trickle coming out of the rocks. But these sometimes, the word here speaks of a gush, bruo. You know, it really was gushing out. Water was coming out. That water provide constant life for the inhabitants near it. In Israel, in other areas around the Mediterranean, you know, a lot of the areas around the whole Mediterranean Sea, these springs would often come out of caves, they go into the cave, there would be the spring to get the source of their water, they'd bring it back, and they would use it. It was crisp, it was clear, it was wonderful. It was called sweet water, glucose, water that tasted good, water that you just lapped up, you enjoyed it. It was fresh, it was sparkling. The opposite of fresh and nice water from a spring would be the most disappointing thing, and that is to find a spring, to be thirsty, to think you've discovered something wonderful, and it was picross, bitter, huge disappointment. You needed water, you came to taste it, and you had to spit it out of your mouth. It's salty, it's brackish. It had too many minerals in it, too much salt, and it was yuck. Bitter water, no good. The Israelites had this bad experience in Exodus chapter 15, wandering in the wilderness before they got to Sinai. It records there that then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter, and they named it Mara. Huge disappointment for them. In the end times, during the time of the curse on the world where the, the judgments of God fly in Revelation 8, it says the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It may be a meteorite or something like that. 
and it fell on a third of the rivers and, and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. In Israel, many of these bitter springs would be near the Dead Sea or down south of the Dead Sea as well. The water in the Dead Sea, as many of you know, is just filled with salt and filled with minerals. You, you could float in it. I would say this way, you can't but float in it. It's so thick. You try to go underneath it and you can't. It's so thick with the minerals that you can't drink it at all. It's terrible. Now, you go further up in the Jordan Rift Valley and the water becomes fresher. The water that comes out of the sides of the mountains, they are fresh and, and that's the sweet water that's being spoken of. James's point here is that a spring can't be both at the same time. One is going to be fresh and nice. The other is going to be bitter. You love this one. You hate this one. This one's useless. But it's not going to be this one one day and that one the next day. I guess there could be some kind of a change with an earthquake and the waters underneath would change and so a spring eventually would change. That's not the point. They don't usually change. They are there and they're sweet water or they're bitter. That's his point. The same point in verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? You go to a fig tree one year and you don't find olives on it. You know, there were figs on it last year, but this year there are olives. It just doesn't happen that way, does it? Or uh, what about a vine, the grapevine? Does it produce figs? Imagine going to a grapevine. You know, you want, some, you want some grapes. You're going to produce the juice or the wine or whatever, and it's got figs on it. What happened? You're like, that can't be. It just never happened. It's a little bit comical here. And these are three of the staples here, the olives, the grapes, and the figs. These were staples for eating, so they all knew about this. This was very common to them. You know, it's common as we have cornfields around here. And we have, what is it, soybeans that grow around here. We're like, well, we've seen that all the time. They saw this all the time, all around the Mediterranean again. Nutritious food grown in abundance. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7 mentions seven crops in the promised land. It says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Some of you are getting hungry now. So they were all aware of these illustrations. Grapevines grew all over the hills. They'd see olive groves everywhere, fig trees. James is simply appealing to their common sense. Look at nature. Understand how God has made it. See how things are supposed to work the way God makes them. Nature operates according to a fixed order. It doesn't change. What it is, it produces, period. It never goes against nature. But what you are doing when you bless God and curse men, that's against nature. That's against who you are. When you bless God and curse men, you are becoming a bit of a monstrosity. You're something abnormal. You're unnatural. It's not supposed to happen. Those two things shouldn't come out of the same opening, your mouth. And it's like he ends this with a punctuation mark right there at the end of verse 12. His whole section on the tongue, he's been teaching and teaching and revealing how bad it is. And he doesn't ever really smooth it out and bring it up to something nice and smooth. He just kind of ends in verse 12. Nor can salt water produce fresh. Boom. That's it. It's over with. That's all he has to say about the tongue. Ponder it. Think about it. This never happens. There's always some smart aleck that says, no, 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 pastor, now they're turning salt water into fresh. I know about this. They got the technology. Yeah, but it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of technology and a lot of people doing it. I tell you, leave the salt water in a pond. It doesn't turn into fresh. That's scientifically true. 
It doesn't change, and everybody knows that. You don't like drinking brackish water. It's unusual. It's a rather abrupt statement. James wants it pondered. Whenever there's something like that, really hard, climactic, boom, think about it. Wow, it just shouldn't be this way with us. It leaves us to try to apply. What a stark contrast. Why is my mouth like that? Why does my mouth do that? Oh, why is my mouth like that? It should be like that spring of life-giving water, sweet water. Add persuasiveness and sweetness to the lips is wisdom. That's how my mouth ought to be. Where does the other stuff come from? Ah, that's the right question. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from another person. It comes from you. That's who you are. That bitterness, that anger, that vitriol, that cursing, that's down deep in you. That has to change. You have to work on that. That should humble you. As it humbles you, you come to the Spirit of God and say, help me, O Lord God, with this. You begin to take it more seriously. It's not a passing thing. You realize there's going to have to be the practice of righteousness. You realize there's going to have to be some real surgery that goes on. You realize this is not going to be an easy thing. You don't gloss over this one. You can't gloss over this one. It'll surface back up again, and everybody's going to hear it. Ah, ah, there it is again. You still have to work on your mouth. Yeah, you do too. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. That mouth, that mouth that doesn't want to change, you can change it by God's power. You can change it. You have a double mind, and because you have a double mind, you have a double tongue, and it leads to duplicitous praise. Start by correcting you. Start with who are those you curse. Start there. Your enemy, that person you most dislike, start with him, pray for him, bless him. Start with that. You'll never stop cursing him until you start blessing him. Return a blessing. Say, I don't want to. You have to. You have to forgive him and you have to bless him. You have to bless him. Someone out there you just meet, they're just, mm, they just act so disrespectful. You know, you were having a beautiful day. You're whistling along and there they are. And it's just so mean. They're so bad. Just cut you off, you know. Uh -huh. Lord, bless this person. Clearly they're far from you. Bless them. Hey, listen, I say this once in a while when we're in the car and someone acts really poorly. I'm with my wife and, and Sue will testify. We say this, you know, this person goes past us acting like that. We look at each other and we say, well, you know, the hard thing is they have to live with themselves. That's a hard thing. They got a lot of curse right there. They have to live with themselves. You don't need to add anything on it. The wrath of God is already operative in their life. Don't you believe that? Pray for their salvation. I was a filthy, foul-mouthed, teenager. I'm so glad that someone prayed for me and that I'm saved. How about you? Treat others well. Don't be snarky. Don't be sarcastic. Don't be petty. Don't be discouraging. Don't be inconsiderate. Don't be hard to get along with. You know, you're upset about everything. People have to tiptoe around you. Quit being that way. Don't put other people down in your conversations. When someone shares something that they did, don't one-up them. Oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I did. Don't do that to them. Don't tear them down. Don't be sharp. Don't be short. Don't be heavy-tongued. Be healing. Be helpful. Be sweet. Be edifying. Be kind. Be gracious. Be patient. Be controlled. And by no means come in here and bless the name of the Lord and go out there and curse men. 
Because here's the thing, God himself takes offense to that. For the person you're speaking of, he made. And he made in his own image. The powerful tongue that James has been talking about has a limit that can be put on it. You have a choice, as Pastor Tom reminded you today, to use it for good or for bad. So what will you choose? When someone cuts you off in traffic today, what will you say? When your kids annoy you or your neighbor yells at you, what will you say? Today is the day to start making a Christ-like choice in all your interactions. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. James has had a lot to say about your speech and thinking, but now he's going to be moving into a discussion on wisdom. Next time on Discover Hope, join Pastor Tom to learn what wisdom is and how you can receive it from your Heavenly Father. There's also another kind of so-called wisdom that's much less heavenly. In fact, it's more along the lines of originating from Satan. You'll learn how to spot that and how to avoid it. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.